Blog Talk Radio. magic pen, and a slimy creature. Just some of the characters that make up Monster Problems, the debut novel by Jason Lady. Jason joins us this evening. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tori. It's great to be here. Well, uh, we've got to begin with um, this this new book and your first one uh, of, of novel length. What kind of reactions have you been getting so far? Uh, very positive ones uh, from adults and uh, from kids, too. Um, I think what a lot of people are seeing in it, that it's fun, it makes them laugh. And uh, it's gotten uh, good reviews on Amazon and uh, Goodreads so far. So I've been very pleased with that. And I find when I uh, tell a kid about the story, they usually light up when they hear about the concept, the magic pen, the sibling rivalry, and it just gets them really excited to read it. Well, that was the thing for me was uh, I was just looking at the, the initial part of it and I was just thinking, oh yeah, I can see anybody who remembers anything at all about their adolescence getting getting into <laughs> this. And I, I did right away. I was like, oh man, this looks good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it must also be really cool to just, you know, they see a kid's eyes light up and go, oh, I think I could read this. Oh, absolutely. I've been at a few uh, book signings until everything got locked down. Um, the book came out in December, so I was able to get a few in in January and February before everything happened uh, in the world mm-hmm. uh, right now. And I uh, was able to meet some kids and uh, parents, you know, people I didn't know who just happened to walk by my table. And, you know, I offered to, uh, you know, tell them about the book. And, uh, yeah, just to see the reaction is really neat, you know. And it, it's one thing when your friend's kids like it and read it, and that's, that's really mm-hmm. cool, too. But when it's uh, people that you don't know, parents you don't know, grandparents you don't know, kids that you've never met, you know, they've got no stake in telling you this is good (laughs) at all, right? (laughs) And uh, they uh, just get excited about it. So that's very pleasing to see. Yeah, and speaking of that kind of thing, it's like the book signings. I mean, I've I've been to a few in my career, and it's kind of like... With with kids, it seems a lot easier, but it's like when when it's with the older folks or when you're writing for the young adult genre like I am or a slightly older one, it's like mm-hmm. I feel like I'm back in an elevator with a salesman and they're saying, give me the elevator pitch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've encountered that when I encounter like an old, you know, an adult, uh, you know, a grandparent or a parent, an aunt or an uncle, mm-hmm. and they don't have the kids with them. And, you know, I still flag them down and say, hey, do you want to hear about my book? Because, you know, they might have some kids in their life that would be interested. So why not? And, yeah, you do feel a little more salesman-ish <laughs> in that moment. And you do kind of see them kind of evaluating, okay, how is this pitch? Is the pitch good or not? Um, mm-hmm. I really found it took me a couple of those to kind of get my footing and 
figure out the best way to explain it to people verbally. You know, I had lots of experience of writing down what the book was about and pitching it, but uh, to actually tell someone in the moment what it was about, uh, that was a learning experience, you could say. Yeah, um, I had a salesman that uh, I used to work with who said to me, he just said, tell me what it's about in 30 seconds. He says, if if you can't get it in 30, you're probably making a mm-hmm. mistake somewhere or you're, you've got to tighten it up. And that was really very much um, a bit of uh, a bit of instruction for me because I sometimes would just go off and then I realized, okay, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, and then make it sound like it's new each time. It's pretty hard. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can get really tired of hearing yourself talk <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I had I encountered uh, one. I think he was a grandfather, and he was like the Clint Eastwood template. You know, like kind of an intimidating oh older guy and kind of flagged him down anyway. And you could just tell he was like, pitch this to me. You know, I could just sense that, you know. And when I was done, he was like sold. And that's all he said. And I signed one for his uh, grandson. He walked away with it. <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, yes, if I managed to win that guy over. <laughs> but it's tough, and though, too, because, you know, I didn't set out to be a salesman of any kind, you know, in my day job or this, you know. So every so often, there's a little voice in the back of my head being like, you sound really cheesy, Jason, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it, it, it can be that way sometimes. And it's, it's, and it, it's depending on the person and, and their personality when they're standing across from you. And I don't try to flag anyone down. I just let them, it's sort of, when I sit there, it's kind of like if they're coming up you know they're interested or if they're coming by and you watch their eyes and you see where they're looking mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, you can say hello. Like, And I always tell people because kids do it some, but adults do it even more. It's kind of like they're scared to touch it. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. Pick it up. Touch it. This isn't a museum. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and there's that kind of initial too, like you wrote this. Yes, I did. <laughs> by yourself, yes. You know, there's that whole thing you have to kind of get through. Like, yes, I'm here. I'm an author. This is my book. Uh, that whole thing. And kids can be tough, too, because they come into the store with tunnel vision. You know, they're zooming right over to the puzzles or the toys or going right into, you know, looking for Captain Underpants or whatever it is they're looking for. And uh, yeah. sometimes they don't even notice you're there. <laughs> I've noticed that it's uh, the it, parents who tend to have their radar on a little more. Yeah, and uh, and sometimes sometimes you you do get them right away, and it it it's it's just fun to really like sort of engage with your audience and find out what you, what what kids are thinking, and it's uh, it's not as difficult to draw them out. I think it's like once you sort of establish with them that hey, I'm 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 not as old as I look. It's okay, <laughs> <laughs> right, and. Uh... You know, and, and talking to them like they're regular people, too, you know, not yes. talking down to them or talking to the parents but not looking at the kids that are with them. You know, I try to make eye contact with everybody who's there. And if there's yep. a kid that's kind of shy, you know, I might kind of kneel down, kind of get on their level a little bit um, mm-hmm. and talk to them and, you know, also do that while I'm signing it, you know, so I'm not like this tall adult looming over them, you know, um, but try to make myself less intimidating because sometimes I think it could be like, oh, this is a, an author, you know, he's some kind of you know, supernatural being. And it's like, no, I'm not. I'm just a regular person. And also try to, you know, let them see that, hey, if you want to do something creative, there's a possibility you could be in my shoes someday and uh, try to get that across. Yeah. Well, the main thing was the book took me, as I think I may have indicated earlier, it took me straight back to grade school. It took me straight back to my <laughs> sixth grade. <laughs> um, I have to, 
Yeah, go ahead. Oh, nothing. I was just going to say, I think that uh, it might be, uh, uh, it might be, you know, a commentary on how in touch I am with the inner child, I guess, <laughs> you know, but the voice of the middle school boy, like it just comes very easily to me. <laughs> and I don't know why that is at age of 43, but you know, here it is. <laughs> well, that's cool. Now I do have to ask what part of of, of what part of your growing up or what about that part of it prompted you to create Brad and the monster and, and this little, uh, this, this very accessible, understandable world? Sure. You know, I really first started trying to write like full length books when I got out of college and okay. I was really all over the place with what my target audience was. I was like, is it going to be adults? Is it going to be young children? Is it going to be YA? And I really hit upon the middle grade as kind of my sweet spot. And um, I think it's, you know, a little bit, you know, I remember vividly what it was like back then for whatever reason, you know, those memories are still pretty fresh. And um, I think it kind of fits in with my sense of humor. Uh, the mm-hmm. the middle school kids, I think they're not so old that they can't be silly anymore. You know, mm-hmm. they're kind of at that age where they're they're old enough to get a book that has a more complicated plot with maybe a little more going under the surface than uh, might be readily apparent. But they also appreciate the absurdity and the humor and the fun. And I really want to inject that to everything I write. The uh, you know the jokes and the the things that would make people laugh. You know, I love doing that. And so to be able to draw them in with that, but then also, you know, have some other things in the plot that might intrigue them too and kind of fire their imaginations up is uh, very rewarding for me. Well, let's begin with Brad. What is this kid really like? Sure. So Brad is a little bit like how I was (laughs) when I was in grade school and middle school. Um, I used to love to draw. Brad loves to draw. Brad is obsessed with drawing, I think, more than, than I was. But that's his whole life. And he really considers himself not good in any subject. He struggles in every other subject except art. That's the one subject mm-hmm. where he can easily get an A because drawing comes so easily to him. And he has a bit of an inferiority complex because he just views himself as good at this one thing. And he's just all in with this. So he's drawing all the time. He's drawing in homeroom. He's drawing in study hall. He's drawing on the bus. And this is really what he's known for at school. And this is kind of, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, his life mission is just to draw. Um, and he kind of juxtaposed of all of this is his relationship with his little brother, his younger brother, who's uh, several grades younger than him, but is a super smart kid, super genius, good in every subject, gets A's in everything. And he ends up comparing himself to his brother and kind of finding himself wanting a little bit that, uh, and gets very jealous as a result. And that's what leads to him uh, using this magic pen to draw what he draws with it. Now that I, I want to ask about in just a second. Uh, yes, the the trope of the evil little brother. Now, Daly really <laughs> does come off as a very he's he's that smart kid, and he knows he's smart, and he doesn't mind letting you know. <laughs> right, right. We've all known people like that of all ages, right? Oh yes, and, uh, he is that he is that kid. Yep, we we all know them. And, um, you know, and even uses his cleverness to kind of trick Brad uh, sometimes, too. And uh, Brad really resents him for that. And so, uh, yeah, he is. And it's interesting, too, because the, the age dynamic, you know, Brad's the older kid, but he's jealous of the younger sibling. You know, you would think that would be the other way around. The younger one wants the stuff the older one has. But, you know, they usually have more privileges. But no, 
but no, not in this case. The younger kid is like, hey, I'm fine with who I am. Who I am is great. <laughs> you know, I'm smarter than everybody. So it's an interesting dynamic between the two, but I think the sibling rivalry really brings it uh, alive to the kids. I just see the kids who are there with their younger siblings just lighting up like, oh, yeah, I would draw a monster to get my younger sibling if I could. <laughs> you can kind of see that even if they don't say it. You know, they get really uh, interested in that idea. And that's and that's such a human thing too. Of of I, I now being the youngest in my family, I don't know what it's like, but I can just imagine what my siblings thought of when they had to deal with me. So <laughs> it's kind of like it really touches. That's the thing. Brad and Daly both to begin with, as do all the others. The character development in terms of you get. There's enough shades of each one of them that you know who they are, or you kind of identify with them. And there's some, it's like you you, you put a lot of work into them and that sort of thing. And it's like, um, did you did you pick from people that you knew or that you grew up with to to help develop the characters? You know, Daly himself, the little brother, the genius little brother, he just kind of came mm. out of nowhere, honestly. That's okay. that's one where the character just kind of materialized. I didn't really know anybody like that. Uh, Brad, the older brother who loves to draw, uh, and he's the main character, uh, was based somewhat on me uh, back then. Um, you know, the the whole incident where he gets in trouble for drawing for, in class and all his uh, stuff is taken away from him. His room is basically stripped down to the bare walls until he <laughs> shapes up uh, by his parents. Um, that really happened to me. Now, it was, I was younger wow. than that, but I was being an absolute stinker at school, and nothing was working. So my mom and dad, it was very effective. They took away all the toys, all the drawing stuff, and you know, I had nothing to do, and that got me to shape up, and I wasn't really in big trouble <laughs> you know, from that point onward. Um, so... You know, really, Brad, you know, had a lot of me in him. And really, uh, a lot of the stories I've written, the main characters tend to have a lot of me in them. Now, Brad's friend, Quentin, is kind of an amalgamation of different uh, buddies I had over the years. You know, those uh, yeah. those guys that are in your same grade and kind of go with you everywhere. And you can count on them no matter what, you know. Uh, really, no one person that kind of drew upon a bunch of them. Yeah, and, it, and Quentin Quentin reminds me a little bit of me to some extent, and um, he's just sort of there. He's kind of a mooch. He's just sort of um, not a bad person, but it, it's also it's like people just kind of look at us like, "What is up with you?" <laughs> he's just so weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's just very unusual. You know, I think about, you know, it's funny because I wrote this story before the movie Napoleon Dynamite came out, but mm -hmm. everybody was talking about the tater tots in the pocket and pulling those out and eating them in class. And I was like, I have a character in my story doing that. I came up with that first, you know, everybody's going to think I copied that. But, uh, you know, I knew kids like that. And I kind of was that kid a little bit, you know, I was shameless, you know, hey, you want those fries? You're going to eat that, you know, going to eat that second cookie. And uh, looking back and, on it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I I remember I had – we had friends like – we were all we all did that. To, I never did that myself. I was just a little weird about that. But you'd always have the friend who wanted a drink of what you had or wanted some of what you had. And, mm -hmm. oh, Christ, I knew somebody in college that did that. <laughs> yeah, and, um, so did I. I. I did that in yeah, college and, a little and, bit too, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I just remember calling. I just remember nicknaming him Starvin' Marvin because uh, 
Well, there was a there was a rap, there was a hip hop song in the '80s by some obscure band. It was called Starvin' Marvin, and it was like, oh, it's, oh, it's my friend. <laughs> right, that's him. That's the perfect nickname for him. <laughs> you know, there was a yeah. group of guys. I wasn't really part of this group in uh, middle school. They were kind of a a different group. I was on good terms with them, but they weren't necessarily my friend group. But uh, they called themselves the Mooch Patrol believe it or not. And these guys would <laughs> kind of circle the lunchroom, scanning for food. They could mooch off people. And a lot of that's where Quentin is drawn from too, yeah. those mooch patrol guys. But yeah, they literally called themselves that. It was like, seriously? <laughs> but it was really funny too. And again, it's that sense of absurdity, yeah. you know, I think uh, middle grade kids can really get behind that and find it funny. Cool. Now, um, we have to get to this uh, interesting uh, twist, because as you were talking about, when Brad gets in trouble yet again, and um, (laughs) he's sitting there in his room alone, the raven, I mean, that got me right away, because we had to read and listen, we had to read the book, which we kind of sort of did, but we also had to listen to recordings of Edgar Allan Poe in like seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. And I wondered, was, was Poe in around at that time for you or did, was that the, the pretext for the Raven or the inspiration? Uh, not so much reading it in middle school, but when I was thinking about, you know, it kind of came to me, this idea of how does this pen get delivered to Brad? How does it come to him? It's got to come to him in some really unusual, memorable way. And I was like, okay, maybe a bird brings it to him and leaves it with him. All right, but what kind of bird? And it really made a lot of sense for it to be a raven because it has all those kind of literary, you know, kind of connotations. You know, you immediately think of Poe. And um, I think that's what I was thinking about when I uh, made that idea. You know, if it's going to be any kind of bird bring it to him, that would be the bird because, you know, Brad's whole thing is drawing. His whole thing is creativity. This magic pen brings everything to life that you draw with it. So, you know, it kind of made sense that if this is coming from some sort of magical creative space, that it would be that kind of bird and not any other kind. It just seemed like it made sense. It was like a real bird of the bird of mystery and also kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's very mysterious and that's a, and not to spoil anything, but you know, you never really find out what the deal with this bird is, <laughs> you know, in the story. I leave that deliberately ambiguous um, for a reason. That is Let true. Yeah. Imagine their own. Uh, well, the other thing too it. is the yes, yes, and the pen. I mean, it's like, um, what was the thought process for making this pen be? It, it's a magic pen, yes, but it's like. Um, how did you think, okay, how is this going to work? How is he going to use this? Was there anything that you used as a point of reference? or How did it come to just make this pen do these things? Sure. You know, to tell you the truth, um, I was casting about for a story idea. I had written a couple of uh, stories that were, you know, pretty terrible. They were test runs. They really were. And I knew they weren't marketable. And I was trying to come up with an idea. And my wife actually uh, – came up with my idea. She's one of my best supporters and editors and, you know, backers, <laughs> encouragers mm-hmm. um, and idea people. But she uh, said, you know, what about a boy with a pen that brings everything to life that he draws? Oh, wow. And I kind of took that idea and just kind of ran with it and built this whole story around that whole concept, you know, and it fit in with, you know, me being someone who liked to draw when he was a kid and kind of bringing up a lot of that middle school stuff that happened to me, you know, and it kind of this, this kind of neat alchemy kind of happened where that all kind of came together for me. And then as the rules around the pen, you know, what you draw with it, only certain people can see it, not everybody can see it. You know, some of those things came, um, came about because I was thinking about 
okay, if there's going to be, you know, he draws this monster that he envisions going after daily and getting daily. What would complicate the story? What would make it uh, kind of fun to read and kind of make mm-hmm. it so it's a little more believable, too, that this monster's roaming around and no one's reacting to it. The whole town is <laughs> freaking out about it. And so, okay, <laughs> let's throw a little complication in there, throw a wrench into the works for the, for the kids, and that is only Brad and Daly and a couple select others can see this monster. No one else even notices it. They see signs of its passing, but that's it. So I'm always kind of thinking about that. What would make this more intriguing to the reader? And that was kind of one of the little rules that came up with the magic pen is that only certain people can see what's drawn with it. And, of course, that just makes uh, Brad's behavior even more strange as the book goes on. <laughs> right. This poor kid is already seen as a little bit of a weirdo, a little bit of an outcast, not not terribly so, but he, he kind of is. And he's got a weird friend in Quentin, not really many other friends. And, yeah, he's reacting to this monster. It's leaving orange slime wherever it goes, so it puts his, it puts its arm around his shoulder at one point, leaves the orange slime there, and he, the monster leaves the room. Brad's sitting there freaking out. Oh, my gosh, this monster has become real. What am I going to do? The other kids in the class are like, what's that stuff on you, man? What's this orange slime on you? <laughs> he has to go clean himself off. And so this kind of stuff keeps happening to him, and the other kids are just like, what a weirdo. So it's doing nothing to help the poor kid's reputation <laughs> at all. <laughs> and. And the interesting thing too is like, um, well, the I love the mysterious character of the Blue Hood, and I was like, I, when when that one popped up, I was like, oh yeah, I remember one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's always that kid that was really quiet. You didn't really notice they were there. Um, they were kind of at the other end of the lunch table alone. And they kind of seemed content <laughs> to be alone. And uh, they were always that kid where, like, no one knew anything about them at all. They were there, but they were a mystery. I mean, I graduated with a graduating class of 35 kids, and there was still one kid in that 35 where everybody at graduation was like, we haven't seen this kid all year. <laughs> who is this kid? <laughs> Don't want to see who this person was. And uh, there's always that kid. Yeah, that's kind of stealth, kind of under the radar. And that was the thing. There was always the one that would do that. And I went to a, well, I went to a, a big city high school, so there were so many kids, and it was like mm. you would see different kids every day, and you would be like, who is that? And and you just and I was like, are you in my class? Who who are you? And yeah. I actually went to college with that. Um, mm-hmm. It was funny. Ten ten years after I got out of college, I think, or no, it was twenty years after. That makes it even more bizarre. After I got out of college, I went to a small college in Maine. My twentieth reunion, um, a handful of us came back, and. Mm-hmm. Here the, this this lady comes up to me and starts talking to me because she and she knows my name and she knows who I am and how am I and I'm just looking at her and I'm like I'm just looking at her and I'm who like are you you, right. you look familiar we had a hundred we had like 175 in the graduating class and I'm just looking at her and I'm like I'm sorry who are you and she just laughed and she said I'm so and so and I'm like. <laughs> okay, uh, the name is familiar. Um, and she goes, "It's okay. You wouldn't have seen me." I was like, "Oh, okay." Huh. Wow. She was a nursing. I went to a school that was largely known for its nursing program, and okay. she was. It, and uh, it, St. Joseph's had one of the toughest nursing uh, programs in all of New England, and so she was always on clinical or always off doing something. And she says, "That's why you probably never saw me." And I was like. 
Oh, okay. Oh, that it was, makes it sense. Was just, it, yeah. I'm glad she wasn't offended by my not knowing, but it was like, oh, man, right. <laughs> where have, where have well, I been? <laughs> you, you feel bad because it's like this person remembers me, and they remember me pretty vividly enough to remember my name and to remember stuff about our interactions, but it's like you don't remember them at all. And well, it's amazing what yeah. the years do because there are people that, yeah, you sat next to them in class, you talk to them, and in the intervening years, you completely forget about them. It's like the data bank got erased in your brain. And then you see this person later, you see a photo or someone else talks about them, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it kind of comes back to you, but you hadn't thought about them for 15 years or something, you know? <laughs> and the, 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 the scary thing about it was I just could absolutely not remember her at all. It was like I knew her name. <laughs> I knew the name, and I must have seen her around because I re- recognized her voice, but I was just like – I must have just been someplace else most of the time, and I, I think, and I was, and I admit that I was. So that had to have been it. Um, getting on to a Brad, we all his, his, yeah, yeah. Well, getting on to Brad and 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 these interesting characters. Now, um, the teachers were great reminders for me, um, Mister. I love. Well, first of all, I love the names that you used for some of these people because it's a, like. Mr. Octagon. Gee, I wonder what he teaches. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Try to have it either be just be a ridiculous name or be uh, a name that had something to do with what they're teaching. Right. And, you know, I mean, adults are kind of silly to kids. Kids look at adults and are just like, what, what's going on? You know, like, we don't understand you, you know? And mm-hmm. so I was like, why not have the teachers have these, like, absurd, like, crazy names, you know? Again, it's something else that a middle school kid will laugh at and appreciate, you know? Um, but uh, also make the story a little more fun. And I don't know if you noticed, I, this is a little bit of a subtle thing, but probably the weirdest of all the adults, the principal, has the most normal last name. He's just Principal Jones, and that's it. But he's so bizarre in his behavior and the stuff he says <laughs> that it makes up for and it. And that was, that was the thing. It was like he's got the most common, obscure name, and yet this man is definitely on his own trip. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely out there. You know, he really is. Uh, He's not what you expect. That's the thing. Brad thinks he's in big trouble getting hauled to the principal's office because of some damage the monster did that, of course, gets blamed on Brad because no one can see the monster. And it's like, oh, he's in trouble, you know, and he's going to have to awkwardly explain this crazy magical thing to this adult who's probably not going to believe him. And the story goes completely a different direction, you know, and that really happened in the moment while I was writing. I was like, the school administration has to get involved with this story somehow, you know, to at the end, there's going to be all this crazy stuff that's happening around the school. It has to be explained somehow. How am I going to do that? And making the principal have his own take on it (laughs) was a way to kind of get around that and also make it kind of fun too. (laughs) And that is what made it fun because it's like, I think, I think to be a principal in any school or to rise to that position, I think you just have to have a certain different set of wiring because of the responsibility. Yes. And I think that's very uh, true of any leader, you know, Uh, they all have to be wired a little different than everybody else to do what they do. And you sometimes just have to be just a little bit crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think to want to do that and have all that responsibility, you do have to be a little crazy. I mean, I think of General Patton as a great example, (laughs) you know, like he was really good at what he did. Would you want to be his friend? I'm not so sure, (laughs) you know, because he was different. Uh, That's for sure. Yeah, and that's the thing you get. You get that, and it's like it. It also puts 
it puts the kid off, it puts Brad off balance a little bit, as it does probably anybody that got called on the principal's carpet. Well, yeah, you expect you're in trouble. You expect that your parents are going to be coming down and there's going to be trouble. And then he just goes off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes kind it of, fun. He has his whole, his whole other like view of the world that he has and his explanations for what's going on. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think that was like a little twist. I just threw in there. Like, let's, let's do the unexpected, you know, let's not have this go mm-hmm. the direction you're expecting. Let's have this, let's have this principle be just completely wacky and have a lot of fun with it. And that's one of the parts yeah. of the story uh, folks have given me feedback about, you know, they've read deeper into it and so forth. Uh, they're like, this is, this is hilarious. The principle is awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks. Cause uh, I, had a lot of fun writing it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And and like, um, as I say, Mr. Octagon, the art teacher was also, I mean, you expect an art teacher to be just a little bit off the wall and he has his own, um, he's like that one, he's just like that one teacher that he connects with the kids, but it's how he does it that just, um, mm-hmm. just makes you just howl because it's like, I know that guy. <laughs> Yeah, we all have that teacher, you know, and they're always really popular, you know, people, all the kids love them, and they kind of leveled with the kids and, you know, had sympathy for them and would kind of talk to them, you know, kind of person to person, you know, not just as an authority figure, and uh, and we're kind of fun and quirky, you know, and usually the art teacher was a little quirky, you know, at school, um, and yeah, Mr. Octagon, probably also, uh, there's inspiration there from different art teachers I had over the years, I never, you know, went the direction of like, you know, drawing um, after a certain point, but, uh, you you know, art was always one of my favorite classes. And yeah, those teachers were usually pretty cool. <laughs> you know, they the math teachers uh, were intimidating to me because that subject was very hard, but art, it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I can do this. And the teacher was usually right there with me, you know, like uh, they're also artistic and you have a lot in common with them. And I think that's what kind of comes out in the story is that Brad and Mr. Octagon, you know, kind of have that common tie with that love of drawing and uh, that being Brad's favorite class. And that kind of brings it out. But yeah, Mr. Octagon has his own set of surprises in store uh, as the story right. goes on that uh, uh, you're not, you don't see coming at all until it happens. Well, that's the thing. There's there's enough twists and monster problems to keep you reading, which is the good thing. Um, now, Jason, we must ask about your upbringing. You were talking a little bit about drawing and all that. Now, you have slightly unique um, uh, upbringing. Your um, your uh, family was a military family. Yeah, we were. Yep, I'm a proud uh, Army brat, as we call ourselves. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, my dad was a career <laughs> – you know, sometimes people hear that, like, he's calling himself a brat. That's so harsh. I'm like, it's what we call ourselves. It's just a term, and it really just means we knew nothing else. We didn't know about life outside of that. Um, so, uh, yeah, my dad was a, a career soldier, and uh, that was the only life I ever knew. You know, he was still in the Army when I left the house when I was 18 after I graduated. And wow. – uh, we moved around a, a lot, not as much as uh, some families did, but uh, we spent some time in, in Europe. I lived there a couple different times when I was in grade school and when I was in high school, and I graduated high school over there. I went to Department of Defense schools that are uh, staffed by American teachers who are, have a great gig. They're paid to live over there and teach American kids. <laughs> and uh, um, in the intervening years in the States, you know, we didn't live anywhere else but Fort Knox, Kentucky. My dad was a tanker. That was the home of the armor. Uh, part of the army uh, back then and uh, mm-hmm. he was always stationed there or over in Europe you know uh, so we went back and forth a few times and um, you know the the writing and the drawing really came into play uh, with all of this because you know I'm looking back on I realized that he moved to a new place you don't know anybody you haven't made any friends yet 
you know, you have to be pretty good at entertaining yourself as a military mm-hmm. kid because you mm-hmm. move to a new place, you know no one, you have to do something to pass the time. And back then, I mean, we had no internet. <laughs> you know, it makes me sound yep, ancient, yep. but we had none of that stuff. So you had to have something. If it wasn't video games or books, it was something else. And so the drawing and the writing and all that really was kind of my thing uh, that I did to kind of help myself until I made friends. Well, the interesting thing, too, is that you living in different parts of the world, different you saw different countries, you saw some, some of the different cultures, the different languages. That must have really shaped it a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, it definitely gave me an appreciation for kind of the big picture, you know, kind of beyond like where I live, you know, seeing the, the history, having that sense of history, you know, visiting, you know, old battlefields, visiting ancient cathedrals and castles and stuff like that. Um, knowing that, you know, there's thousands of years worth of people that have walked where you've walked, you know, there was just something really cool about that. Even as a little kid, I was picking up on that, you know? Um, but, uh, I had some cool opportunities that a lot of kids don't get uh, doing my high school years over there, especially I did model United Nations at the Hague uh, when they uh, weren't in oh, session. Wow. We got to use their building in the Hague and drama club. You know, we went to Stratford on Avon in England and got to visit it and, you know, see a play. And uh, there's just kind of some really cool experiences that I'm still in touch with some of my friends from back then. And we're just like, you look back on it, it's like, we got to do that stuff. Really? That's really cool. And that's kind of a neat thing about those schools over there. They take full advantage of it. They really do. And try to give people a good experience because they understand it's hard. You know, kids are moving around a lot and those schools are really small too, but they try to give Mm -hmm. the kids the full range of high school experiences that they can. I was once on a track team at a really tiny school. Uh, there was only two people on this track team. It was me and one girl, and that was it. And <laughs> they said, you guys want to do this? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll make this happen. You know. And there was a guy who was our coach who was also the art teacher, actually, coincidentally enough. But he drove us to meets in his car. It wasn't worth getting a bus for. There was only two of us. And uh, so he actually had a Porsche, and he drove on the Autobahn <laughs> to the meets in his Porsche. <laughs> I was in the front seat just loving it. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> but it's one of those things. And he, he had on, the license really that happen. allowed him to drive as fast as he wanted, right? I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. We're back then. The rules were different. He just could, you know, so it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> I think the girl was probably just asleep in the back seat, you know, she didn't care, but I was loving it. So that, that was cool, you know, and they, they really, made those opportunities happen for the kids over there. And that, that made That's the experience good. really special and really, really enriched my upbringing. Well, in terms of that upbringing and the, the enrichment of it, how about uh, what did you read early on? I'm always interested in, my guess, reading material and maybe those of what your parents read and, and that sort of thing. What what got you early on? Yeah, you know, my, my parents uh, were avid readers, huge library at home, always were reading, grew up seeing nice. and reading all the time. That's what they did almost every night for entertainment, rarely watched movies or television. You know, they were usually just uh, reading books um, and mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff that they read. But they were very encouraging of my sister and I, I have an older sister, uh, of us reading. Um, and uh, were very supportive and took us to the library, took us to the bookstores. And so the stuff that I ended up reading as a kid, um, read a lot of different uh, series like Encyclopedia Brown, um, the Ramona oh, books, yes. uh, Super Fudge, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. Um, uh, I remember funny, those, yes. Uh, 
Yeah, and they would new volumes would come into the school library, and I remember being a fourth or fifth grader, just being so excited when I found another one that I hadn't read. Uh, just ate those books up, and it's a series that I really liked when I was a kid was the Three Investigators, which I feel like no one's ever heard of. Um, most people I heard of the not. Hardy Boys. I never got yep. into the Hardy Boys, but the Three Investigators were like another series of kids who happened to be detectives, but they were younger kids. They were actually uh, middle school kids. Um, but it was a great series, and there was tons of them, and so just devoured those. So, and then uh, another one, another series that really comes to mind too, that really was impactful for me, is the Chronicles of Narnia, um, the Lion, Witch, oh, wow. and the Wardrobe, and that whole series. I still remember one of the later books in the series. I think it might be the Magician's Nephew, where you learn how they built the wardrobe that the kids walk through in the first book. It's like a book that's a prequel. And I remember that just blowing my mind when I was a kid, like, wow, this is a later book in the series. It's explaining how the first book happened. And for a kid, that's just amazing. Now I will tell you too, that probably about fourth or fifth grade, I got the comic book bug in a big way. Um, And my dad and I collected comic books together. And, um, yeah, we had a blast. Um, the Avengers, Captain America, the X-Men, Spider-Man, those were pretty much my thing. So really those series I mentioned in comic books uh, were the things that really kind of shaped uh, me. And I think the, the comments read with all of them, you know, looking back, is really that, that adventure aspect. But with the comic books mm-hmm. and, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, really there was a lot there to stimulate your imagination. I just had this very vivid imagination. I still do. It helps me write uh, to this day. And those books really just kind of ignited it, you know, at an early age. Yeah. Well, C.S. Lewis for you was Tolkien for me. Okay. And okay. Yep. Exact same. It was just this, when you're, you know, when you're reading The Hobbit at nine and you don't fully get it, but you get enough. And then you read The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings and it's like, for me, same thing. The doors opened in terms of what was possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, and I had that same experience, yeah. you know, uh, reading The Hobbit mm-hmm. younger, right? Because I was geared towards a younger audience and then reading The Lord of the Rings probably maybe in high school. Um, mm-hmm. And then just being like, oh, that's what was going on behind the scenes in The Hobbit. Wow. Yep. You know, that, that the whole world, you know, that world building that Tolkien did was just amazing. It really was. And that's that's the thing I've always said because it took him, I think, 22 years to create all of that, to create that uh-huh. universe. And I didn't think of it that way until, ironically, I heard William Shatner talk about uh, creating a universe when he began the Tech War series, I think back in the uh-huh. 80s or something. And he just yeah. started, he said that when he started talking about creating a universe, he said, now I have, you know, he's like when Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry created a universe that I was in as Captain Kirk. But now when I'm starting to write, it's like, oh, I can create my own and I can make my own rules. And mm-hmm. it flashed me back when I heard him tell Larry King that to mm-hmm. Tolkien. I thought, that's exactly what he did. Wow. Mm-hmm. And and as I always yeah. and I, my mind always goes back to that when I work on my various projects of okay, I may be writing more mundane things, but you've got the keys to open these doors if you want or if you need. Yeah. And and you know, so that's the way I look at it is it's like there's there's so many there's there's nothing that says you can't write this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no rules. And I think one of the things that 
kind of psychologically happens to writers in a lot of different ways. They put themselves into a box, and I do it to myself all the time without even realizing it sometimes. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. I can do whatever I want. I'm writing the story. You know, if I want there to be a twist or a turn, I can do that. If I want to have a character drop in like Blue Hood and uh, kind of shake everything up, then I can do that. And uh, that's a really cool thing uh, about it. And, you know, I think having read a lot and read a lot of, like, really good stuff, you really, as a mm-hmm. reader, know kind of what, what, is really, what is really cool to kind of come along in the story and, uh, you know, keep you interested and keep you intrigued and give you that feeling of, like, oh, you know, that you and I were just talking <laughs> about, you know, uh, that, that yeah. little bit of a tingle you get, you know, um, that – that uh, what's going to deliver that to the reader, you know, what's going to, what's mm-hmm. going to give that to them, you know, kind of thinking about that as you go. And I think sometimes writers put themselves in a box and think, Oh, I've got to have this and I've got to have that. It's like, no, you don't, you could do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. You started making your own comic strips back in the day. Uh, what uh, uh, do you, do you remember any of the, any of the, the characters or, or whatever stories you created? Oh yeah. So um, when I was really young, um, before I got into comic books, you know, I was reading a lot of comic strips, so Garfield, Calvin and Hobbes, stuff like that. Yep. And so I actually took all my stuffed animals when I was a little kid and had them star in the stories. Um, oh, wow. I had Lucky the Duck. I had Binky the Bunny. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of fun stuffed animal characters like that. And they kind of had these Mickey Mouse little adventures. Um, I don't remember exactly what they did. I more remember the characters than the actual stories. Um, but I drew those kind of like three or four panel things. And then I kind of graduated to once I started getting into comic books, I was like, ooh, I can make my own superheroes, you know, then that took off. And what I ended up doing with that was actually kind of an interesting thing. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, moving to the new places, trying to make new friends. Something that would really help me make new friends was as I made them, I would put them into the comic book and make superheroes out of them. And the superhero would usually be kind of based on their personality to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. Started doing that in uh, grade school. There's a group called the, the, the superhero team was called the Challengers. And it had all the kids in my fourth grade class in it at one point or another. My little circle of friends were kind of the stars and he had some kind of like extra characters who were the other kids. But it was so cool because no matter what grade I was in doing that, you know, it was always like something reinvented that I, you know, did with a new group of people. And what was cool is that people would come up to me and be like, hey, have you drawn any more pages of the story? You know, what's going on? And then they would get in these little arguments amongst themselves about, you know, whose superhero was tougher and whose superhero would win if they fought the other guy's superhero, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, they just had all these, like, strong opinions about it. And you'd hear them arguing. And it was so cool because it's like, hey, I made this. <laughs> They're very passionate about it. <laughs> That but, um, is that really is helped. really cool, and it's, uh, yeah, it's and it certainly really a way to make friends. Kind of of... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's like it's, it's a great way to make friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and especially for a bunch of kids that have moved a lot, and they're they're disparate, right? They're from all over the country. They're from all over the yep. place. Some of them have been born in other countries, and, you know, no one really knows anybody. And uh, it, it was really a nice way to help them bond, and it's really surprised me. Um some of my high school friends who know that I've written a book, you know, they reminisce. They're like, oh, yeah, Jason, I remember you were drawing those comic books or uh, drawing those story or writing those stories that had all of us in it. That was so cool. And I'm like, it's amazing that these people are in their, like, 40s, you know, now, and they remember that, you know. It apparently made an impact on them. You know, they remember it. And uh, that, that's just so cool to me um, that it was really mm-hmm. meaningful for them and kind of helped all of us bond um, back then. Yeah. 
Well, you also wrote your first novel in high school. That was obviously a, like a like a natural progression, wasn't it? It was, and and to be honest, Tori, what happened was I drew. I got really impatient with drawing. I was drawing my own comic books, and I was starting to get a little more sophisticated, like wanting it to look better. And I was like, this is taking too long. I'm not able to crank out the output that I want, you know, because I have to draw it and I've got to put the words in. So that's where I started to lose interest in drawing, I have to admit, because I still wanted to tell stories, but I wanted it to happen quicker. You know, it wasn't happening fast enough for me. And I wanted to be able to do more uh, in a shorter period of time. And that's where I realized, oh, if I write, just flat out write, um, I can do that a lot faster. And so, yeah, um, this was in 11th to 12th grade. And... I had a group of guys and uh, some girls that were my friends, and I drew a parody of Robin Hood. Uh, my friend, uh, good friend, I'll plug his name here, Dan Fogel. Uh He was Fogel Hood. He was the starring role as Robin Hood. It was kind of based on the Kevin Costner movie that was popular back then, the Robin Hood, yep. Prince of Thieves. And it had all of us as like Little John, Will Scarlet, but it was like a ludicrous like parody. It was a little more like Robin Hood Men in Tights, actually, come to think of it. Um, but... Uh, it had some kids as like, you know, the kids we didn't like so much were the sheriff of Nottingham and, you know, the bad guys. Um, but these spiral bound notebooks, you know, two of them I took up just writing freehand in there. And these books got passed around on the bus on the way to sports meets and on the way to and from school. And uh, the kids would just be like, hey, have you written anything else? And so, yeah, that was really the first time I wrote a full length novel. And I think that's where the bug came from. It, it kind of grew slowly, um, and I ended up minoring in creative writing in undergrad just to try to get a little more education around uh, writing. Um, but that's mm -hmm. really where it got started, and it never really left me. Um, people ask me, you know, what motivates you to write? I'm like, you know what? It's just kind of a thing. It's just in there saying, Jason, do this, <laughs> you know, a compulsion, I guess. And uh, I haven't been able to, you know, totally ever get away from it or deny it. You know, it's always been there. And what in between uh, that story and Monster Problems? There must have been some other works, and I'm, I'm interested in asking how you ended up with Black Rose Writing and how you ended up getting Monster Problems uh, into, uh, into everyone's yeah. hands. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was a long journey. I tell people, if you're going to do this, you got to be perseverant, unless you're one of those yep. people that lucks out and one of their very first queries gets published. You know, you've got to be in it for the long haul. So, um, yeah, I started writing um, a, a book in college. Um, the classes that I took were very much geared around short stories. And, you know, full disclosure, I don't do short stories. I can't <laughs> write a story and have it be that succinct. I have to have the full length, you know, with chapters to tell my stories yep. I've found. And so I just asked the teachers, is it okay if I submit chapters of a story, you know, in class? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. So I did that. And I was writing a – it was like a superhero story, but it was kind of like a Tom Clancy book with a lot of, like, kind of thriller, intrigue, spy elements to it. Um, um, I reused the name The Challengers, actually, from my grade school uh, superhero <laughs> idea mm -hmm. that I had. that had all the kids in it. But I had the characters be characters at a time who, like, came forward in time from World War II days and kind of encountering a world that was different. And I wrote that and spent a lot of time on it, and I kept writing it when I was out of college. I was a young adult. Uh, my wife was in law school here in Cleveland. I was working my first job, and I was kind of doing that on the side. And, um, you know, I wrote this whole big thing, and then I was like, you know what? Like, this was fun to write, but the more I was learning, I joined the Society for Children's Books Writers and Illustrators. I started going to workshops, mm -hmm. started learning more about the business side of all of it and the marketing and yep. finding your audience, making something that, you know, people would – 
you know, really want to buy, really want to read. And I was like, you know what? No one's really going to want to read this. This was more a book for me, <laughs> not really a book where it was uh, had anything commercial in mind at all. Um, yep. So I put that aside. And um, I wrote a couple other, you know, full-length books, um, I think, between that time and when I started writing Monster Problems, which was probably about 2007, 2008 neighborhood when I wrote Monster Problems. So it was literally that long ago <laughs> that I yep. did that, about 13 or so years ago. Um, and it really, you know, kind of like I alluded to earlier, you know, I really got to the point where I, have, I was like, what is my sweet spot? You know, I'm trying to write books for adults, and it's just not, it's just not working. You know, my sensibilities yep. are skewing younger. Um, so what do I do? And that's where I really started to learn in a way I hadn't before about the different genres and the different age groups and, you know, what what word choices, what plot choices do you make for different age groups? Um, yeah. So I kind of learned that. And SCBWI was a huge, huge thing um, in my life to really – and I'm still a member – but to uh, um, to learn more about writing overall and learn more about things like that than kind of the nuts and bolts stuff. And so that really got me thinking more seriously about it all. And that's when I realized, oh, middle grade, middle school, you know, that I think that's my, my wheelhouse. Um, so I wrote Monster Problems. You know, like I said, my wife had the initial idea for it, and I kind of took it and ran with it. Um, and I submitted it over and over again, uh, queried, mm -hmm. queried <laughs> to agents, to publishers. I lost count. Um, I didn't, wasn't keeping track. I thought it'd be depressing. <laughs> so I didn't uh, keep track of how many, but I would say in the dozens. And honestly, um, mm -hmm. I didn't do it you know, for years straight, you know, I went to grad school, I took time off from it, I did other things, um, but I'd always pick it back up again. And so really, I got connected with Black Rose writing uh, a couple of years ago in a period where um, I'd been laid off from my job, actually, um, back in 2018. Uh, there was a big kind of corporate downsizing kind of thing, and I lost my job. And I had all this time on my hands. And, you know, my wife, again, being the great encourager, you know, that she is, she was like, you know, you can only do so much looking for a job in a week, Jason. There's always so much you can <laughs> accomplish every week looking for a job. It's like, why don't you, like, yep. you know, try to move your writing further ahead, you know? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I think I'll do that. And um, the way I got connected with Black Rose was um, there was a website called authors.me or author.me, mm -hmm. I think it was called. Um, I'm in a critique group of some people that I met through uh, the children's writers. Um, I've been with them for years. We critique each other's work every month. And one of them actually said, hey, I've heard this authors.me um, where they kind of match manuscripts to publishers and it's a free service. Um, they just kind of threw that out there at one of our meetings. And I said, hey, I'm going to look into that. And I had all the time to build my profile and put my materials up there. And then several months went by and I forgot about it. And then that website was getting taken down. And a notification went out to everybody who was using it. Hey, this website's about to go away. Um, Black Rose wrote me and said, hey, we discovered you through that. You know, we were about to reach out to you. We don't want to lose touch with you, <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. we're writing you now. And I was like, you want to publish my book? Is that why you're getting in touch with me? And they were like, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it kind of went from there. Um, and it's been a really good experience. But, yeah, like I said, you know, the, the perseverance, just kind of sticking with it long term uh, is, is yeah. so critical uh, to the whole thing. One thing I do want to ask you about, um, you're a member of something called the West Side Kids Writers Group. What is the value of having a regular group like this for you? You know, for me, um, having that regular connection with other writers and other creative people, I think is crucial. Um, you know, writers tend to be kind of introverted people in some ways and stereotypically maybe don't want to be in crowds and stuff, and that's fine. But if you're able to find and cultivate three or four just other people 
who are serious about writing too. You know, this isn't just some little lark that they're doing, you know, uh, amidst a hundred other things. No, they're really serious about it. They want to improve their work. They want to get published. You know, they really are working at it. Um, the, the encouragement these people can offer um, is, is crucial. And uh, the expertise of critiquing your work, you know, they really help refine monster problems to be what it is now. Um, you know, other sources did too, but um, I would say that regular check-in and that regular, you know, connecting with other writers and other creative people is, is so inspirational. And also it gives you an opportunity to give back. The writing thing can be a very solitary, it's all about me, what I'm up to kind of thing. And <laughs> yep. you don't really get it. could be you can, Your focus can narrow to just you. And if you find yourself where you're able to give back to others and help them, and even people at different stages where maybe they're not published yet, maybe they're still trying to think of an idea for a story, and you're able to kind of help them like people helped you in the past, um, I, I think that's kind of a paying it forward kind of thing that, you know, we should all do. Um, but, yeah, the value was huge and just refining my work. And some of these people I've known for over a decade now, and they mm-hmm. saw Monster Problems in its nascent form as a word document that they were critiquing, you know, and now it's a book. And uh, it, it's just so cool to have had people that have been kind of with me through that whole journey and are also people that are writers themselves. Very cool. Well, what is next for Jason? Well, um, the second book comes out uh, December 17th of this year. Um, it's called Super Problems, and it's another book in the same series. I envision a trilogy. I envision there being three of these at least, and it's different kids getting the same pen. The pen comes to them. The pen helps them solve some sort of a problem or quandary in their life. It creates lots of havoc and shenanigans that happen, uh, that same kind of silly, fun tone, but also with a little bit of a uh, you know, life lesson embedded in there is, is still there. So I envision doing several of those. And then there's a science fiction series. I love sci-fi. And there's a sci-fi series that um, I would love to write as well. I'm torn as to what the age group would be for it. But, uh, you know, that's something I could dive into and probably write like a ton of them. We talked about world building before. That's one where I could probably just go nuts (laughs) and uh, create something uh, bigger than monster problems uh, with it. Um, But, yeah, that's what's coming up next. And uh, it's pretty exciting. I got the contract for the second book uh, back in February, and it was a little bit like, am I just a one-hit wonder, a one-book wonder? You know, is this all it's going to be? You know, I really want to do more. And when they said, yeah, we want to do the second one, I was thrilled. I was like, yes, this is great. This is just what I want. So um, I'm very excited that book is coming out, too, and then potential Uh, for another one after that. That's great. That is fantastic news. Well, Well, we have Monster Problems out. Where can we get it? Okay, so um, Monster Problems is available on Amazon. Um, it's also available at Barnes & Noble, pretty much any major book retailer, you know, name them, you know, Books A Million, any of them. Uh, they're selling it on their uh, website. You can definitely order it yep. through any of them. Um, it's a, I have a small publisher, so it's not in a lot of actually physical stores, which doesn't really matter right now, does it? We can't even go to the stores. So, <laughs> yeah, um, but it's available uh pretty much anywhere you can name online. That's a cool thing about Black Rose. Even though they're small, they really get it out there and available to everybody who, uh, you know, regardless of what your outlet of choice is, you can find it. Okay. I guess one last question then is, uh, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, what advice do you give to someone that uh, has an idea or is working on it, but they feel like they've hit a wall? What do you tell them? Sure. Yeah. The, the wall is a dreaded thing, <laughs> the writer's block and so forth. You know, um, one of the best things is to bounce the ideas off other people, you know, see if they're, 
you know, it can't be just anybody because a lot of your friends and family will just kind of pat you on the back and be like, oh, that's a great idea, but they won't really help you, <laughs> you know, yep. and that's okay. They're just not wired that way, you know, but find the people in your life that are wired that way or meet them, go find them, you know, in a writer's group of some kind, libraries often have them. Um, it could be something like the children's books writers or whatever your local literary group is, but find people that kind of bounce the idea off of and be like, okay, I've taken to this point, but I don't know what else to do. Those perspectives can help you crack the code. And people can point out things that you have your blinders on. You're not even seeing it and can really help just ignite the flame. And you're like, aha, I can do this now and take it and run with it. But yeah, letting other people into the process is, is crucial. It becomes very collaborative at that point. Um, and you, like I said, you're getting other people's perspectives, which is uh, just so important with it. All right. Well, Jason, I have had a blast talking with you. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. I've had a lot of fun, too. All right. That wraps up this edition of the Brown Posey Press Show. Our guest has been Jason Lady, author of Monster Problems, available through Black Rose Writing. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan and the coming sequel, Call It Love. This is the Book Speak Network. 